And we'll just be confessing together. Question and answer 91. Uh, this is the gratitude section of the Heidelberg Catechism that is focusing now on our life of thankfulness to God in light of the gospel. And last week we began to think about why it is that we even do good works. And we thought about some reasons from First John. And today we're going to think about what exactly is a good work and that definition of goodness and how it differs uh, from the world's definition of good and what God says is good. And since we looked at Psalm 51 and thought about repentance and what it means to turn away from sin, we're not going to focus on that part of this Lord's Day. That's questions and answers 88 through 90. Uh, You could read those on your own time. But let's say just question and answer 91 together. I'll say the question and let's say together the answer. Beloved, what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith conform to God's law and are done for his glory and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. So let's keep that in mind as we turn now to the Holy Scriptures, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, is our Scripture reading in focus. This account of the rich young ruler is also in some other Gospel accounts. We'll reference uh, some of that in our sermon here, but we'll focus mostly on Luke here, 18, verses 18 through 30. Did the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of it now. Gospel of Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. Well, a certain ruler asked him, that's Jesus, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many more times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Love it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I wonder if any of you are familiar with a ministry called Living Waters. It's an evangelistic ministry began by Ray Comfort. And in evangelism, they often do what's called a good person test. Uh, they'll go to a busy area of the world, like a beach or a mall, and they'll put a sign there, are you a good person? And they'll put a microphone there next to the sign, and they invite people to come and take a good person test. 
And when the person is asked, you know, by Ray Comfort or the evangelist, are you a good person? You know, most of the time they'll say yes. And what uh, he does is he begins to go through the very commandments of God with these people. Well, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? And, the, and they'll often say, of course, yes. And what do you call a person then who takes his name in vain? A blasphemer. Have you ever told a lie? The person will say yes. What do you call someone who tells a lie? Right? A, 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 a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever looked at someone with lust? And, and you get the you get the gist. And and so at the end he'll say, well, by your own admission, right? You're a blasphemer. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're an adulterer at heart. If God were to judge you simply by His law, would you be able to stand before Him on the last day? And this this kind of strategy is meant to awaken people to consider their goodness in light of God's law. Uh, the goal of a good person test is to drive people out of themselves to find redemption and hope and grace in Jesus Christ. And we learned in our own Heidelberg Catechism earlier on, if you want to live and die in the comfort of Jesus, you have to first know how great your sin and misery are. A true goodness, we might say, this side of Eden is not something that we possess by our natural birth as human beings. Well, here you notice in our text, Jesus conducts a good person test with this particularly rich and religious man. And Jesus teaches us here that our own goodness cannot make us right with God. But for those who trust in the goodness of Jesus Christ, they are actually able to walk in the ways that please the Lord. And so that's what we're going to think about as we uh, move through this text systematically. We'll first begin thinking about the world's standard of goodness. And we'll see that in verses 18 and 19, the world's standard of goodness. And so as we dig in here, uh, we see this man, this rich young ruler, and he's coming to Jesus and he's asking him, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And notice the first thing that Jesus says, which is a bit odd. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Why does Jesus respond like this? Well, given the rest of the story, we will see that, that Jesus knew that this rich young ruler was being superficial in his praise of Jesus as this good teacher. If this man truly believed Jesus was good in its fullest sense, then of course he would leave everything to follow him, whatever the cost. Moreover, Jesus is indirectly forcing this man to question his understanding of true goodness and even his understanding of who God is. Who was this rich young ruler? Well, he was a good person according to the world's standard of goodness. He was probably an official, right? This ruler maybe in charge of the local synagogue. He was extremely rich. He held a high status in society. Moreover, he was young. He was full of life, full of promise. This was a successful man. He's the kind of person we would admire and maybe want to imitate, right? You know, you look at his LinkedIn profile and it looks pretty good. He's got money. He's got power. He's got a resume. He's respectable in the eyes of man. But although this man seemed to have it all in the world's estimation, the Gospel of Mark tells us in his account that this man actually dropped to his knees before Jesus. And he asked him, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, this man was troubled in his conscience. 
No matter how much money or success you have, it cannot fill the void in our hearts for a relationship with God. Right? Successful actor and comedian uh, Jim Carrey once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they could see that it's not the answer. Our status, our success, our riches, they can't satisfy the soul in the end. And this rich young ruler comes and he's on his knees before Jesus and he's asking him, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And notice what Jesus now does. Jesus gives this man God's standard of goodness. Verse 20. And what does he do? He goes through the commandments with him. Well, first, uh, we might question Jesus's evangelism strategy, right? You would think this is the kind of guy Jesus would be just ready to embrace and receive, right? He's the man who's got some money. He's got power. He's religious. But we see this man is lacking the most important thing that Jesus looks for, which is a heart that recognizes his worth, a heart that loves Jesus. And so he begins to expose this man or he seeks to expose this man using the law now the law of god we might think of the ten commandments is a revelation of god's character of who god is and one of the primary uses of the law is to expose our need for jesus christ and his gospel in theology we often call this the pedagogical use of the law the law as a teacher, the law as a tool that is driving us to Christ, exposing our sin. Right? This is what Paul says in Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. But you see, this man, he, he looks in the mirror of God's perfect law, and he does not see himself as spiritually poor and needy. Instead, he says, all of these I have kept from my youth, verse 21, or since I was a boy. I think as human beings, maybe even as Christians, we often think too high of our own morality and too low of God's standards and even of who God is. But the law, if we look at it rightly, we take time to assess what God's word is actually saying. We see it exposes the very depths of our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Indeed, this rich young ruler's earnest questions show that he is troubled in his conscience because he knows deep down that his law keeping cannot save him. Right. If you don't trust in Jesus and you're trying to earn God's favor through your own life, you're always going to be wondering, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? And there's no peace in this way of life. There's no comfort. As we confess in Heidelberg Catechism 62, this is because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. And so since that is true, when it comes to salvation, we are called to give up self-reliance and self-righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ alone. If you look at Luke 18, One of the most important things you could see in this text is actually the context. Notice what comes before in Luke 18. Right before, we see the account of the children coming to Jesus, 
Children just like you coming before Jesus. And children have no resumes to offer to Jesus. They don't, they don't have you know, a list of merits that they've done and good works that would show why they're acceptable to God. All they offer Jesus is their sin. But Jesus welcomes them and he blesses them. And notice what comes also in Luke 18 in the context. Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And there again, we see the kind of people Jesus justifies. Who goes home from church in that account, blessed by God? Is it the man who is proud of his own law keeping and who is outwardly a pretty good guy? No, it's the person who sees his need for grace. It's the tax collector who just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that man goes home from church, the temple, justified. You see, in our text, if the rich young ruler is going to be saved, or if any person in this world is going to be saved, they're going to have to humble themselves like this child and like this tax collector and see that they have nothing to offer God but their sin and cast themselves wholly on Jesus. That's the reminder to us as well that we might be good in the world sense, people who have life together in a worldly sense. But if we are to be saved, we must say with Paul those famous words of Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. After Jesus shows this man God's standard of goodness, he then calls him to trust in the goodness of Christ, the goodness of himself, verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus says to him, Jesus looked at him and said, or sorry, it must be verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Sadly, the rich young ruler does not come to Jesus like the children. He doesn't come like the tax collector, but he comes to Jesus still treasuring other things in his heart above God. The word of God calls these things idols, things that we set up above God or alongside God. What's interesting in the Gospel of Mark, we're told that Jesus, looking at this rich young man, he looked at him and he loved him. And he called him into this life of discipleship. It's incredible. Jesus loved this man who at this point was not a Christian believer. This is what New Testament commentator D.A. Carson calls the pleading love of God. The love of God that he has for sinners where he pleads with them to come and to follow Jesus, to find life in him. And Jesus, he cuts past the external obedience of this man's life and he gets to the heart. He gets to the idol that's there. And he says in verse 22, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. It's a call to trust in the goodness of Christ. This young ruler has called Jesus good teacher. But does he really believe it? Here's the point. Does he believe it? He tells him, give up everything and trust in my goodness. Give up your treasure and find in me to be your treasure and trust in my provision. But we see that this rich young ruler, he lacked true faith. We're told those sad words that he went away sorrowful. He couldn't give up the temporary for the eternal. And so he left the presence of Jesus clinging to his wealth 
instead of clinging to Jesus as his treasure. Beloved, when God puts his finger on those idols in our own hearts, we're called to surrender those things into his hands because Jesus recruits disciples who understand his worth. Some of his disciples were fishermen who who left their nets. They went and followed Jesus. Others were tax collectors who left their booths and went to follow Jesus. And in this text, we learn that Jesus wants us to trust in his goodness and in his provision, whatever the cost. Some of you might know the name uh, Nabil Qureshi. He was a well-known Christian apologist who was converted to Christianity after being raised a Muslim. And he wrote a couple of really good books. One of the famous ones he wrote, maybe it's in our library, it's uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Uh, Nabil died a few years ago at the age of 34 after a year-long battle with cancer. Uh, But in his writings, he often speaks about the cost of following Jesus in his own life, being shunned by his Muslim family and friends. Uh, He speaks of how his conversion caused his mother and father tears and heartache, even to the point uh, that he died. But one of the things that he was reminded of in his own life of discipleship, which was often costly, were these words from Jesus in verse 28 and 29. When Peter asked him, we have left everything to follow you, right? What about us? He found comfort in words like this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many more as much in the age, many more times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. And here, beloved, we begin to see what true goodness is in God's sight. When we trust in Christ and give our lives to him, there is a rich reward. You love the Apostle Peter's boldness. Peter echoes the question here that we actually ask in question and answer 63 of the Heidelberg Catechism. But do our good works earn nothing? It's one of our questions. And the answer that Jesus gives is the same answer that we get in our catechism. The reward is not earned, but it's a gift of grace. God rewards out of his grace all of those who follow him in this life of discipleship. And we see here, don't we? We see here a very big difference between the good works, we might say, of people who don't trust Jesus and those who do trust Jesus and seek to follow him. Jesus doesn't look at the sacrifices of his disciples and say, well, all of your good works are just filthy rags before me. Don't even keep trying. No, instead, what does he do? He commends those who know his worth, who trust in his goodness and are willing to sacrifice what is precious to them in order to follow Christ. And he even promises them a reward. In this life, he says, in this age and also in the age to come. What a gracious God. Yes, our most devoted acts of service to Jesus today and this week, they're they're tainted with our sin this side of heaven. Even our motives are mixed, aren't they? Sometimes we're sincere, but sometimes that sincerity is mixed with other things. But God in his grace receives our life of devotion to Christ, even in the ordinary things like eating and drinking, Paul says, when we do it for the glory of God. 
Again, here, Westminster Confession, chapter 16, which I quoted last week. The first part of that confession speaks about how our good works bring nothing to salvation. They can't contribute anything to salvation. But it says this, Yet notwithstanding, the persons of believers are being accepted through Christ. Their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. You see in our text the main difference between the world's standard of goodness and what God considers pleasing to him. It's faith in Jesus Christ and a desire to bring glory to God in our actions. Again, the rich young ruler, he did many things according to God's moral law, we might say. Outwardly, he did some good things, but he did not do them from faith and for God's glory. And we learn from Hebrews 11, verse 6, this word, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. But by faith, beloved, you see the child of God, the disciples of Jesus here, you, beloved, who follow the Lord Jesus, are able to walk by faith in ways that please the Lord, like Enoch of old, like Abraham of old, like Noah of old. God calls us in Christ very friends of God. Our good works don't earn one bit of our salvation but they flow from the child of God who sees the worth of Jesus Christ and who believes that God rewards those who diligently seek him. And so Jesus shows us in this text, verse 29, that our labors are not in vain, but it's worth it. Even when the path is difficult, it's worth it to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Again, he says, it not only leads to a glorious inheritance in heaven, but even now, he says, even now we receive those blessings from God. What are those in this life? Spiritual parents, spiritual homes that we have as the family of God, spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ in the church and throughout this world. Jesus says, right now you're receiving these things. The gospel of Mark's count says you will receive them a hundredfold. God provides for all of those who trust in the goodness of Christ. Calvin wrote this, Once God has graciously adopted believers, he not only accepts and loves their persons, but their works also, and condescends to honor them with rewards. Beloved, we can give our lives completely over to Jesus in every way, because we learn in the gospel, Christ gave up his own life for us. We consider the context before, but look right after this text. Jesus tells us about his death. And in that section, he tells us that he is the one who is rich in glory. But for our sakes, he humbled himself. Jesus became a man. He left that place of glory with the Father to be humiliated on a Roman cross where he died for our sins to bring us to God again. But he was raised from the dead showing that his labors were not in vain, his work was not in vain, but God crowned him and exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And Jesus' own life teaches us then that it is worth it to follow Christ.
So, dear listener, where are you at in this story today? Are you like this young ruler, trusting in your own goodness to make you right with God? The call of Jesus is to turn away from self-reliance and self-righteousness and to look to his goodness. Or maybe you feel like Peter. You've sacrificed many things for God, trying to live for his glory, sacrificing your energy, your time, your resources, and you wonder, is it all worth it? Here again, the gracious words of Jesus Christ. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Your sacrifices are not in vain because none who follow Jesus will be put to shame. So, beloved, this week, may we fix our eyes on our good and gracious Savior who gave up everything for us so that we may not grow weary in doing good, as we heard this morning. For in due due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, our gracious God and our good Savior, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to fix our eyes on Christ and on his infinite worth today and this week so that we may not grow weary in doing good. And help us, O Lord, by your strength to do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. We pray that you would be glorified in your people as you establish the work of our hands. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.